The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me to Psalm 119. Many of you may know that Psalm 119 is the longest psalm, the longest chapter in the Bible, so maybe it's with fear and trepidation that uh, you hear me call you to turn to that chapter, but we'll be looking at the first portion of it. I noticed with interest as I was studying for this passage this week that Charles Bridges, who's a well-known 19th century preacher, went through this psalm at the age of 33, which happens to be my own age right now, and he uh, preached 22 sermons on this psalm, which filled 481 pages in a published book. When I read that, I was, first of all, rather humbled, and second of all, I realized how much I can't say about this psalm in one sermon. It was rather foolish to think that we could could tackle that, but I think... uh, Nevertheless, this chapter of Scripture is one of the great treasure troves of God's Word. And uh, it's, a, it's a meditation on the delight and the importance of God's Word. And so I hope that we can spend the little time that we have considering some of its chief gems tonight and that maybe we will follow the psalmist's advice and not just take this sermon but then continue to meditate and roll these truths amount, around in our minds uh, this week. Psalm 119, as, as many of you know, is an acrostic poem. It has 22 stanzas, and each one of them follows a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And in each stanza, each verse begins with that letter in Hebrew uh, that characterizes that, that stanza. And I want to look at the first five stanzas together tonight. And I just come, and this is a little bit of a longer section of Scripture that I'm reading tonight. But don't look for the psalmist to make sort of a logical argument that I'm going to try to follow point after point on the psalm, psalmist here is more rolling around the delights of Scripture. He's, he's sort of tossing them around in his mind and with his words and discussing its beauties and its delight and sort of holding up these gems and looking at it from all these different angles. And so what I hope we can do as we read this together is just look at the themes that arise as, as the psalmist looks at this, this gem from all these angles. So let's read verses 1 through 40 of Psalm 119 together. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your words in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. 
With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent and accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promises that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Let's pray briefly. God, this is your word, your rules, your commandments, your testimonies, your ways, your promises. Your words are precious. They are delightful. I pray that you would give us a growing joy, a growing understanding uh, that the psalmist's prayer here, that we might find life and strength in your word, might be accomplished tonight as you speak to us through it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm not sure how many of you are dog owners, but most of you have seen a dog with a bone at some point and know some of the characteristics and the relationship between a dog and his bone. I think if you, if you, if you think of a dog and a bone, you'll, you'll recognize if you have much experience with these animals, that there's different ways that a dog can approach a bone. Sometimes a dog sort of pounces on a bone and sort of attacks it and then gets distracted and comes back and attacks it. And it's this sort of distracted, playful, uh, approach to the bone. Then there's other times where the the dog just uses the bone as a means to interact with you. And he sort of plays fetch with the bone or sort of wrestles with the bone. But then there's other times when the dog really gets serious about the bone. And this is when the dog sort of takes the bone about 20 yards away from everyone else in a dark corner 
where no one's going to distract him and really settles into that bone. You know, he's sort of been there for 30 or 40 minutes and you're hearing sort of like growling sounds and, and scratching sounds and licking sounds. And there's nothing you can really do to distract a dog when he's into the bone like this. It's, 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 it's licking and snorting and chewing and delighting in and wrapped up in and, and considering, enjoying ingesting this bone. And, and, and the dog is consumed with that. And there's nothing else that can pull this dog away from this bone that's almost becoming part of him and, and wrapping him up uh, in his attention. I think this, this attitude of this dog and the bone perhaps is some example of the psalmist attitude about God's word here in these voices and the attitude that the psalm is inviting us to share. It's the attitude of someone who is so overwhelmed by the joys of the, the thrills of the taste of, of perhaps the perfect meal or, or a dessert or a fine wine that they don't just eat. You know, most of us, we, we have a, a meal and we just eat it. But then there's, there's sometimes that, that meal or that, that dessert that we don't just eat. We, we let it roll around in our mouths and we, we, we enjoy the taste and we swallow it, but we're still thinking about what it tasted like after we've swallowed it. We're pondering the joy. We're meditating over it. It's this attitude that the Old Testament summarizes with the word Hagah that the Bibles, your Bibles, will translate meditate. And I think when we hear the word meditate, usually we think something like, well, it means to think about or, or to think on. And, and to think about something is certainly included in the word to meditate, but it's not just that. To meditate, this Hebrew word, is, is to let something wash over our minds and our hearts and our souls. It's to expose our hearts to God's word and invite the power of God's spirit to work in us. Meditating on God's word is reading God's word, delighting in God's word, pondering God's word, and then sitting back and and digesting God's word so that they become part of us and nourish us and shape us and influence us. Meditating on God's word, you may remember Psalm 1, which says that the righteous man meditates on God's word day and night. It's where our life is, is wrapped and enveloped in the truths of God's word. And as we begin to read Psalm 119, we find that Psalm 119 is not merely a call to meditate on God's word. It's actually an example of meditation. It's an invitation to meditation. It's, it's a portion of scripture that God has given us that both demonstrates meditation, it describes meditation, and that it invites us to join the psalmist as he meditates on God's word. And as we consider these verses tonight, as we roll them around in our minds and our hearts, I want us to see what this psalm is saying in answer to three questions. First, what does it mean to meditate on God's word? Second, what are the benefits of meditating on God's word? And third, why does God's word bring such wonderful benefits? So let's look at these three questions in this psalm. First, what does it look like to meditate on God's word? And if you look through these verses that we've read, the psalmist gives us a number of words and phrases and examples of what it looks like to meditate on God's word. You might notice, for instance, uh, in verse 15, the psalmist says that he meditates on your precepts and fixes his eyes on God's ways. This phrase, he fix my eyes on God's ways. 
is used to, to describe meditating on God's word. And that word comes up in verse 6 also. In verse 6, the psalmist says uh, that he has fixed his eyes on all God's commandments. So we have this phrase of fixing our eyes on God's ways and commandments. Another phrase that the psalmist uses in verses 30 and 31, he says that he sets God's rules before him and clings to his testimony. In verse 40, he says he longs for God's precepts. And in verse 20, he goes even further saying he's consumed with longing, consumed with longing for his rules. So you have this idea of clinging to, longing for, being consumed. It's a a passionate longing for God's rules and testimonies is another uh, way that the psalmist describes what's involved in meditating on God's word. One of the most interesting uh, sets of verses, verses 14 and 16, each use the word delight. Verse 14 says, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. In verse 16, I will delight in your statutes and not forget your word. But in verse 14 and 16, there's actually two different Hebrew words that are both being translated delight here, but they actually refer to different kinds of delight and something different that the psalmist is doing. The word that's used in verse 14 is a word that indicates joy and celebration. It's sort of the exuberant gladness um, that, that comes about with something that is exciting and is a cause for, for great rejoicing. And so when I hear this sort of exuberant rejoicing in God's testimonies as much as in all riches, I think the psalmist is saying we typically think of people rejoicing in this way over sort of the sudden influx of riches. You know, you get all these riches and we're going to jump around. I sort of see, see the, the game show contestant who's just won $25,000 in a new car on, on the game show and they're jumping up and down and rejoicing and hugging and you sort of see this sudden exuberant rejoicing uh, over, over riches. They can't believe how lucky they are. Well, the way that we see people rejoicing over riches is, is the way the psalmist is rejoicing in God's testimony. It's a celebration, it's a joy, it's an exuberant gladness that he finds in God's testimonies. Verse 16, on the other hand, uses a word that describes sort of a, a settled pleasure, a deep, calm joy that comes with, with, with peace and an appreciation of all the blessings and goodness around you. It's, it's sort of the picture of the mother who's, who's sitting on the beach with the warm sun shining down. She's watching her children play happily. She's on vacation, so she's relieved from the normal busyness and duties of the day. And she has the space and time to think over and appreciate all of God's goodness and blessings. That's sort of the settled delight and joy that's being talked about here in verse 16. So we have both this exuberant joy and this settled deep satisfaction and cause for joy in God's promises and assurances and rules. So here's meditation. Meditation involves reading and thinking and pondering. It involves fixing our eyes on God's word. It involves longing for God's words and clinging to them and these different rejoicings not forgetting God's word. Pastor and author Eugene Peterson describes the act of meditating on God's word this way. He says, meditating in God's word often involves soft purrs and low growls as we taste and savor mouth-watering, soul-energizing morsel words from God's truth. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So here's all of these words of fixing eyes, not forgetting, clinging, longing, rejoicing, delighting that describe this activity of meditating. I wonder 
okay, well, practically, what does this look like in our, in our lives? And I want to just pause for a minute and maybe give some suggestions for what it looks like to meditate on God's word and what meditating on God's word might, might involve in our lives. First of all, meditating on God's word involves reading broadly in all of Scripture. It's interesting, Eugene Peterson makes the argument that if we just read individual verses or gather a list of verses or passages that we like or inspire or appreciate or sort of just read New Testament books that we think are really helpful, we're actually sifting Scripture and choosing ones that we think will benefit us spiritually. So we're creating our own spiritual growth environment. Well, we're not the ones that have the wisdom to to choose our best spiritual growth environment. It's God who does that. Our great need is for God to tell us what he wants us to hear, not for us to engage in what parts of his word we find ourselves liking the best. And this means reading all that God has spoken to us. And so if we're going to meditate on God's word, we need to read all of scripture, read broadly, not just the New Testament or this or that, but to read all of God's words. That's a necessity if we're going to meditate on God's testimonies, precepts, and ways. But second, we must have parts of Scripture, perhaps specific places in Scripture where God has spoken to us, ready at hand, dwelling in our minds and our hearts. We need to have particular passages of Scripture ready. And so that means memorizing God's Word, so that when we are walking through life, we have His words ready at hand. Perhaps this may mean a specific routine of memorizing God's word for you, where you're memorizing passages regularly. Perhaps for others it means having passages of scripture that you write out and have around you. I know that my wife has scripture passages on the window in front of the the sink that she sees constantly throughout the day so that we're constantly coming into contact with these passages of scripture so they can roll on around in our minds. We can be treasuring them in our hearts. We can be repeating them day after day so that their joys become part of us and we know them and Perhaps even if we can't recite them word for word on the spot, we know they're truths, they're part of us. That type of memorization and deep meditation and review and regular, uh, regularly dwelling on specific passages of Scripture is part of meditating on God's Word. Thirdly, say meditating on God's Word involves engaging God's Word in different ways in different contexts. Hearing God's Word preached allows God's word to be spoken to us from outside our own minds and our limited understanding. So the preaching of God's word brings insight and understanding. It confronts us with God's word in ways we wouldn't be confronted just on our own. But then we have maybe small group Bible study, and small group Bible study allows us to discuss and ask and wonder and enjoy God's word in community with fellow believers. And if if any of you have been in a good small group Bible study, you know the incredible joy of discovering the truths of God's word together, of suddenly realizing that God's word says something or something about God together with fellow believers and sort of rejoicing and being awed by that in that context. But then we need... We need, of course, to be in God's word on our own, alone, so that we have the space and the freedom to explore, to sit back and and think, to stop and pray, to pray and read, pray and read, to hear God speak to us in that quietness. And so engaging God's word in these different contexts will allow us to meditate as we're, we're there in community, hearing it preached, discussing it together, and also being there on our own. And so in meditating on God's word will not confine God's word in just one 
context of our lives. And finally, I would say meditating on God's word means reading God's word for transformation, not just immediate application. I want to explain this for a minute. I've often heard people give the advice um, in sort of how should you have your personal devotions. And I'll hear people give the advice, well, read a, read a passage of scripture and try to just pick out one verse each day that will uh, apply to your life that day. And that can be a helpful piece of advice. I encourage you to look for specific verses in God's word that will sort of apply to you that day. But I think that this is also a bit simplistic. And it will give us, I think, a challenge to really engaging God's word rightly. David Mathis, who's written a very helpful book on the means of grace, says that this is too simplistic approach, and he says it often expects something that God's word isn't meant to give. And I found it interesting that in talking to my youth group students, the number one reason why most of my youth group students have given me that they don't read God's word regularly is they can't find how a verse they read applies to them that day. And if they don't see how it applies to them, it's difficult for them to know why they should be reading it. But I think they might be looking for the wrong thing. Because much of God's word is not about, well, here's how you should act differently in the next 12 hours. It's about shaping who we are and transforming our hearts and our minds. I think of, uh, for those of you who are coffee drinkers, I think that often we approach our uh, devotions Keurig style. We want a chapter with instant application to zap us in the morning. But God's word works a lot more like pasta. If you're a runner, you know that it's more important what you eat the day before a race than it is a couple hours before your race because you want to put the food in your body that's going to get inside of you and nourish you and give you the strength you need for the race the next day. And that's more like what God's word is doing. It gets inside of us and shapes us and transforms us and renews us so that we're prepared with God's strength and God's truth and God's word for where he's taking us and for what he's bringing us about. Regularly steeping our minds and our hearts in God's word transforms us. It renews our minds so that we know what is good and right in our core when the situations arise. Eugene Peterson, again, he puts it this way. He says, God's word is not like a grocery list or a basketball rule book just telling us what to do or what we need today. It's instead intended to get inside of us to deal with our souls, to form a life that is in line with the world God has created, the salvation he's enacted, and the community that he's gathered. And so we want to read God's word regularly and broadly and diligently, not so it can give us this instant application today, but so that it shapes us and transforms us. So here we have this delight, this delight in fixing our eyes on God's word, this this sort of chewing meditation on his word. I think this helps us, you know, when you read Psalm 119 and you hear things like, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules. When was the last time you heard anyone say, my soul is consumed with longing for rules? And so this, this, this can sound unusual. But when we understand what meditation is, this delighting in, this, this thinking on, this ingesting, making all of God's word, all of God's testimonies a part of us so that they shape us to be who he wants us to be, shaping our desires, our longings, our wisdom, then it makes much more sense to hear, I'm longing for your rules to become part of me. Well, this is maybe a picture of what meditating on God's word looks like. What of this second question? What are the benefits of meditating on God's word? As the psalmist thinks about God's word in these stanzas, he comes up with more and more benefits. And we could probably spend 
many sermons on the benefits of meditating on God's word in, in, in these verses, but let me just mention a few. Right at the beginning of Psalm 119, the first two, ble- uh, first two verses sort of give us the introduction when he gives us this general declaration, blessed are those who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies and seek him with their whole heart. This word blessing, happiness, fortune, good goodness in life. This blessing comes to those who walk in the law of the Lord. That's the psalmist's sort of general declaration. But then he gets specific and begins to mention the specific blessings that come from God's word. Verse 6, verse 6, the psalmist says that because of God's statutes and rules, by keeping them, he will not be put to shame. One of the blessings is that he will not be put to shame. In verse 31, the psalmist says the same thing, only this time in in the form of a prayer. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. Now, I think we want to understand this. The psalmist is surrounded by enemies. He says, even in verse uh, 22 and 23, that he's been subject to scorn and contempt and that there's princes plotting around him. So when he says that God's word is keeping him from shame or or will keep him from shame, he's not meaning that there's never going to be someone who ridicules him. Here, I think shame is referring to the humiliation that comes when one of God's people has been exposed in his sin and his disobedience. This word here is talking about when one of God's people is publicly humbled for his sin. It's the shame of knowing that God sees our sin, of having to stand before the holy and righteous God with our sin exposed, having to stand in the congregation of God's people with our sin on public display. God's precepts and God's testimonies and God's law are a protection from this shame. And God's precepts and God's commandments, we will not be put to shame as we cling to them and keep them. In a similar vein, in verse 9, the psalmist declares that God's word keeps our way pure. Or as verse 11 puts it, storing up God's word in our hearts is a protection from sinning against God. I think the psalmist is saying that knowing and storing up God's words in our hearts is the surest way to guard our life from from temptation and overcome sin. Now how? How does God's word guard us from temptation and sin? Well, this passage is not presenting scripture as some sort of magic talisman. When we were traveling in Turkey in college, we spent several weeks over in Turkey and they had these eyeballs they're called evil eyes um, that were printed on everything. They, they could be printed on dice that would have evil eyes on them or printed on plates, printed on all these things. And the bus drivers, the Turkish bus drivers, all had these eyeballs hanging from their rearview mirror. And they believed that it was a protection. It was a talisman. These, these eyes would protect them and watch over them. Well, this passage is not saying that the word of God is some sort of magic talisman that we memorize a few verses and it keeps us from sin. It's going back again to to what Scripture is. These verses aren't giving us a religious formula. It's speaking wisdom that God reiterates throughout his word. That knowing God's word, that meditating on God's word makes God's truth and wisdom part of us and shapes us to know God and to be shaped by his word. You might think of where Jesus says that we are sanctified by God's word. He, He prays, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. God's word is our means of sanctification. Or maybe you think about Proverbs, which declares things like, the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And then 
you will understand righteousness, justice, equity in every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. The process that Proverbs is describing here is we hear the Lord's word and then we understand righteousness, justice, equity in every good path for it comes into our hearts and gives us knowledge that we delight in. That's how God's work works. God's word offers real hope of growth and righteousness as we lean on it and meditate on it. Well, another blessing, verse 18, the psalmist declares that God's word holds wondrous things that our eyes might be opened. He prays, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your law. It's so easy for us to be blinded by the the busyness and the mundanity of our lives. If you think about in your waking hours, how many concerns that have to do with this life present themselves to you? Everything from preparing a meal and doing the dishes to business problems and, and, and conflict in a person. There's so many this world things that press all around us. But scripture breaks in with divine and eternal truths. It calls us away from just this worldly concerns to see wondrous things from God's law. We see around us unpleasant things and we're discouraged. We see worrying possibilities and we're anxious. There's so much to do and we are overwhelmed. But in the midst of that, When I hear this phrase, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law, I I have in my mind the picture of Balaam and his talking donkey. How Balaam's plodding along in his life when suddenly his eyes are opened and he sees the heavenly truths. Or, Or maybe Elisha's servant who is so focused on the fact that he's surrounded by an enemy and Elisha prays that his eyes would be opened and he sees the angels of the Lord around them protecting him. This is the kind of eye-opening experience that God's word gives us to take our eyes off the concerns of this life and see divine truth, the heavenly truth of God's strength, of God's protection all around us. God's word offers that to us. Another benefit and blessing, verse 24, the psalmist says that God's testimonies are his counselors. And he's just said, And I think this is such a a beautiful verse. You you get a picture in verses 22 through 24. Here's the psalmist. He's surrounded by enemies. He's got princes who are plotting war against him. Well, what would you think that the psalmist would be doing if there's princes plotting war around him? Probably worrying and coming up with a battle plan and talking about strategy. No, he says, I'm meditating on your statutes. While the princes are around me plotting war, I'm meditating on your statutes. Why? Your testimonies are my delight and they are my counselors. Well, how? How How? and in what way is God's word our counselor? God's word brings us truth and help, wisdom and counsel. Wisdom is the tool to respond and make decisions in a godly way. And I think it's helpful for us to understand that when Proverbs and Psalms talk about wisdom, they're not always referring to the answer to a problem, but they're referring to the tools to approach a problem. So when Proverbs, for instance, talks about the wise man and, and says, you know, answer a fool according to his folly and don't answer a fool according to his folly. Well, how do you know which one to apply? Well, that's much of what Proverbs is doing is trying to give us the wisdom and saying, Proverbs isn't here to give you the answer that applies in every situation. It's leaning on God's word is shaping us to have the wisdom and the tools to know how to approach these situations. I think that's something of what the psalmist is saying here. It's not that he's going to open to a certain chapter and verse and find the answer to some question he's asking. Rather, leaning on the Lord and, and digesting his truth 
equips him with the wisdom and the knowledge of God and God's truths and God's ways and God's promises and God's principles so he will know how to act. The Bible is not an answer book, but it does transform us into godly people who have the wisdom to face the situations he's called us to face. Well, we can keep going. Verse 28, the psalmist declares that God's word gives him strength. You see all these blessings. It keeps him from shame. It keeps him from sin. It offers wondrous things to behold. It's his counselors. Verse 28, God's word gives him strength. He says that his soul melts away with sorrow, but God's word offers strength. I don't know what you have faced or what you are facing in life. Maybe you faced a series of disappointments. Maybe you've gone through a life-changing illness, divorce. Maybe you're facing a task or a situation that seems impossible. I don't know what, in what way your soul might melt away for sorrow. But in these places, God's word offers strength because God's word brings us back to the source of strength. It speaks God's words of comfort and assurance. And through God's word, his spirit enables us to go forward in his strength. God's word offers strength in the midst of our difficulty. And then finally, the last that I'll point out climactically, the psalmist says over and over again that God's word is the source of our life. Verse 25, give me life according to your word. Verse 37, give me life in your ways. Verse 40, in your righteousness, give me life. God's word offers the hope of life. And again and again, in fact, one commentator says that Seeing God's word as the source of life is the most common refrain throughout this whole psalm. It comes up and again and again all throughout Psalm 119. And in fact, it comes up with more and more frequency toward the end of the psalm. David, or the psalmist here is looking and finding life in God's word. What is this link between God's word and life? Well, sometimes the link between scripture and life is a promise that God makes, that the psalmist is holding on to. Sometimes it's that in keeping God's law, there is life. Sometimes it is that God's laws restore us and give us life since they turn us back to God himself. But whatever the context, again and again, the psalmist's point here is that he's not just content with doing what is right. He is acknowledging his dependence upon God and his word for life. And as one commentator says, the psalmist wants nothing less than God's life-giving touch that comes from his word. Well, these are some of the benefits that the psalmist mentions here. What about this last question? Why is it that God's word brings us these benefits? Why is it that God's word is the place where these blessings flow? Well, in the end, I think we can put it this way. God's word brings these tremendous blessings because God's word brings us back to God himself. Because God's words are God's words. David Mathis again puts it this way. He says, The Bible is no magic book that can change us and help us in special ways. But there is an enigmatic power that stirs when we reach for the scriptures. Something influential, though invisible, supernatural, though unseen, transpires as we read the text in front of us and take it into our souls. And why? Because before printing a Bible, before binding a Bible, before covering it with leather, God speaks. God's words have these blessings because they are God's words. And just as in conversation we discover a friend, so in the Bible we find our God. 
And this is so evident when we read Psalm 119. I found it interesting just as I read these few stanzas to try to separate out what the psalmist was saying about God and what he was saying about his word. It's almost impossible to distinguish the two. They're constantly intertwined. One minute he says that God's commandments keep him from shame and the next minute he's asking God to keep him from shame. One minute he's speaking of God's words and precepts and the next he's praying directly to the Lord himself. But I think the psalm says two things very clearly. First, it says that these laws and these testimonies are described as God's. They are his laws. They are his commandments. They are his testimonies. They are his precepts. And so the principle, which we find spelled out clearly in verse 12, is this. He says, blessed are you, O Lord, and therefore teach me your statutes. It is God who is good, who is powerful, who is true, who is wise. And because that's who God is, therefore his word is good and powerful and true and wise. And just as we value the advice of a man who's been in our business for 25 years and we say, well, he's been successful for 25 years and this is his advice. These are his words. I'm going to take them because of who he is. So these words are so wonderful and come with such blessings because they are God's words. And then I think the psalmist also makes it clear that God's words are his chosen means for changing, saving, and helping his people. So in verse 25, the psalmist says, Give me life according to your word. And in verse 28, Strengthen me according to your word. In other words, just as God's words were his means of creation, how did God create planets and elephants and pomegranates and everything else he created? By speaking words. So we ask the question, how does God recreate his people? How does God make new creation happen in his people? By speaking words. God's word is his chosen means for changing his people. And so it's no wonder that we hear stories like we, we hear, uh, if, you, if you followed our Children's Missions in Me project this year, there were multiple stories of, from Voice of the Martyrs of God's Word all throughout the world. And we heard stories like a girl became a Christian because her friend gave her a Bible. And simply by reading a Bible, she knew who Jesus was. How many times do we hear people, they don't have a church, there's not a specific purpose in evangelizing them, but they come to Christ because they picked up a Bible. But this is just what we should expect because the Bible is God's word and is God's chosen means to strengthen us and change us. And so I think we have to say this psalm just bleeds with words like delight and joy. And how can we not delight in God's word when they're his words, when they're his chosen means of of changing us, when they come with all of these blessings. It's no wonder that the psalmist responds in delight to God's word. This isn't some extra zealous religious commitment bleeding out of these verses. It's a natural response of a heart that recognizes all that God is offering in his word. And at the very core of it, it's God offering himself. And I think that's so clear when we think about God's word. The The psalmist delighted in God's word. But we can't help remember that the Gospel of John proclaims that Jesus himself is God's word. Jesus is the word that became flesh. And so just as God revealed himself by speaking to Moses and the prophets, so God revealed himself by showing up and speaking to us in his son Jesus. And in the Gospels, we find God's testimonies, God's ways, God's word in a man. 
a man who came to accomplish all of God's promises and commandments and precepts and speak them to us and plant them in us by his spirit. And so Psalm 119 becomes a call to savor and to meditate on both the words that God gave to Israel in the Old Testament and it's a call to savor and meditate on God's word that he sent in a person for all these blessings that we find here in Psalm 119 and climactically this prayer for life that we might find life in your word becomes fully true in Jesus Christ, the word that God has spoken and sent. It's in his word that we find life and strength and joy forever. And so my prayer tonight is this. It's the prayer of Psalm 119. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. For behold, I long for your precepts and in your righteousness, give me life. It's the blessings of God's word. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would hear these words of the psalmist. But I pray that reading them tonight or considering them together in this sermon would not be the end. Because if we're going to meditate on your words... We'll continue to chew on them. We'll digest them, dwell on them, make them part of us. And I pray that through your spirit, you would fulfill what you have said, that your word would change us, strengthen us, and give us life. I thank you for the blessing and the privilege of hearing your words. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.